welcome to The Colour Tour, Season 3, Episode 5, Bob Faster, Hollywood, Santa Monica, LA in general. What can I say about Bob? He has been at the top of the colouring tree for at least 30 years. Known as one of the top colourists in the world, one of the highest paid, highest profile colourists around the the 90s, the noughties. He's now at Company 3 for what he says is his third time. He's back more or less where he started doing long form. He has got some fantastic stories and insights for you if you want to climb up the ladder as a colorist. It was a real pleasure to chat to Bob and I hope you enjoy my chat with Bob Fester. Ready to have some fun? If you look inside, you can see every possible color. Welcome, Bob. I'm really pleased to, to get you on the show. We've talked about it for a while, haven't we? And we're finally here. All right. Hey, Matt, it's good. It's really good to see you. Yeah. I know we plan to do this, uh, you know, for years, probably. I know. But uh, this is really great. I mean, I wasn't going to do this Zoom thing. Like, I thought, oh, no, it's not the right thing. It's meet in person, you know, go to the go to the bar. And then I thought, well, I'm going to have no choice because it's been a year already. It's still probably going to be a year before I get anywhere to record any of these shows. So here I am. Well, in a way, you get to cover more uh, more territory too, right? More mileage. Well, that's the other interesting thing. You know, there's places I never would have probably got to ever just because it was too far out and it wasn't, you know, viable. I can now cover those people. I can look around and go, oh, you'd be interested to talk to. I'll talk to you. And I think what's great about your program is that, um, you know, every time I've, I've listened to one of your deals is that it's like the uh, it's like the League of Nations. I mean, you've got so many different people from so many different parts of the world with so many different accents. And, uh, you know, it's really rich and diverse. And I like that part. Good. Good. Okay. I'll keep that in. I like that. That's like a bit of a trailer. Let's before we get a whole host of things to chat about, just update people. On what you're doing now, what are you what are you coloring at the moment and where are you working? Well, let's see. Part of the charm of uh, working in Hollywood is there's a finite number of places you can work. And um, a lot of times you leave, go somewhere else, come back, leave again, come back again. So I'm at uh, Company 3 for the second or third time. And uh, we'll talk about this later. But, uh, you know, the business is always in transition. Things are always changing. Um, you know, your business line can be, um, like you said, TVCs, commercials one day. The next day you might be doing a feature. But right now, especially with the pandemic, you know, there's just acres of episodic TV that's, uh, that's being produced. And quite frankly, uh, you know, it's like a moth to a flame. That's where the uh, creativity is right now. It's where the money is. And so I'm working as an episodic colorist working primarily in uh, television, in uh, streaming media primarily, and I'm working out of uh, Company 3 Hollywood. But the primary um, destination for episodic TV and a little bit of feature work is in a building in Hollywood on Lillian Way. We call it the Lillian Way building, and uh, that's Company 3 Hollywood. A bit of a backstory. When 
I started coloring late 80s through the 90s. Bob was sort of like this colorist up there on a pedestal, and he was like uh, one of the top colorists, one of the highest paid colorists. How did you, there's work coming in there now, Bob. Yeah, get that. It might be, it might be another offer. Thank you. <laughs> uh, like what was your journey to get there? We're talking about an age with no social media, no websites, no internet. You've gone from somewhere, and I, I don't know your full backstory, and you've got to write up there. How, how did you go about and what was your story to begin with? I'd love to tell you it was all my talent, all my charisma, all my personality. But let's back up a little bit. I mean, we're probably talking about the um, early 80s. And um, post-production was just blooming. And, and coloring in particular had just come out of the photochemical dark ages and was moving into the, um, you know, the film scanners and uh, linear film scanning at the time. There were huge windows of opportunity. I mean, there was so much work, so few opportunities, uh, so few post facilities. And at the time, you know, there weren't a great deal of colors either. So there was just opportunity was just falling off the truck. And um, I'll give you an example. One of my first jobs was at, Delu was at Deluxe Laboratories, working at a, um, a trailer a prefabricated trailer on the lot of Deluxe. And they treated video mastering as a afterthought. So we were virtually working in a dark little trailer and, uh, you know, I didn't really enjoy it. I kind of hated it. But I remember the, uh, the guy that used to come in and service the ranks, who's, uh, we should back up a little bit. Ranks and tells were early film scanners, if you remember. <laughs> and one of the premier models at the time was uh, kind of in the second generation. We were using the Mark III, uh, Mark III C's with, um, uh, with Zoom capabilities, with XY Zoom. Oh, he, that was huge at the time, if you remember. And uh, so I'm working at Deluxe, didn't really like it. And um, the engineer at the time was a guy named William Capon. You may even know who he was. He's since passed away. But William uh, was, we got to be friends because our machines always need to be serviced because you know we were working out of a trailer. And William brought me a list of the North American users of the Rank Intel Mark III C. So was on a green piece of paper. There were 25, I distinctly remember there were 25 machines in all of North America. So these are the places you could potentially work. And uh, quite frankly, I remember the, the opportunity was so great that I just looked at the piece of paper. I went to the first one on the list, which was a company called Action Video. I smiled and dialed. I got in to talk with the chief engineer, um, uh, Sam and Joe, the two guys that own the facility. And um, I remember this great little uh, anecdote. Uh, one of the partners said, you know, Bob, this is a new company. We're going to be really busy. We don't have a lot of money since we're starting from, you know, we're bootstrapping up from the ground up. We can't pay you any more money, Bob, but we can make you a star. <laughs> and I kid you not, that's what the opportunities were like back then in 1980. So, uh, so there you go. So. Had, had you been to film school or art college or anything like that beforehand? Or yeah, I mean, I have a, a a bachelor's and a master's degree in television and cinematography. Right. Okay. So that, that was from Pepperdine University in Malibu, California. Right. Okay. So that's where you grew yeah. up. Is that where you grew up around that part? Yeah. 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 So you you haven't gone too far then, really, have you? No, the apple doesn't stray far from the tree. <laughs> 
So, so you got you got your gig there, and it was it was funny you mentioned then like had X and Y control because people can't believe now how basic these color correctors were, and what you just couldn't do. There was just so many little things that we could adjust, tread very lightly, and it was all it was all film. A lot of it was grading from from film. There was no grading of any tape or digital back then, was there? We got to remember, all we really had was onboard film grading at the time. And if you remember, we had masking, which was a way to incorporate different curves to actually get the most out of a piece of IP or negative. Yeah. And that was it. You know, you had three trackballs and, and your good looks. And that's, you know, three joysticks and your good looks. And that was it. So we're talking about pre like DaVinci or Pandora or base, pre any color corrector external. Right. Right. And what was the first and, uh, first color corrector that you used in conjunction with the telecine? Well, there were certainly earlier approaches and earlier devices, but the first one I remember was a, a sliding console uh, based on sliders that was called the Dubner. Yeah, uh, I'm certainly aging myself at that point, but um, I mean, to this date, we were doing stuff in that analog domain that I guarantee you can still not be duplicated. I look back now at some of the stuff we used to work with in. Uh, in Dubners and uh, especially at Encore, we did a lot of handcrafted stuff with electronic pin registration. We had a device called a Prism, which was such an infinitely selectable secondary color correction system. I mean, really taking your wedges down to just pixel depth and um, nothing against Resolve, but uh, we aren't doing today what we used to do yesterday in the analog domain. It was so sharp. So I do miss some of those sharp tools we used to have. Oh, oh yeah. So your move into commercials where you primarily, I suppose, climb the ladder. How did that sort of come about? Uh, I think the same kind of idea. I mean, I was working at Deluxe doing a feature mastering, which was, you know, uh, mastering the 20th Century Fox catalog to one inch type B, I believe. Yeah. Back in the day. But once I went into the um, action video world and the editor world and the encore world, uh, that was really the advent of the, you know, the commercial rock star colorist. And, um, you know, your repeat business happened in the studio. And that's how you earned your business. There weren't salespeople by the dozens. You know, people came in and worked with you because there was so much work. They had to work with new people. But once you earned somebody's business, I mean, that was it. You were um, you had a client for life. You really got into their hearts. We, we're talking around sort of mid-80s now, are we? Are we into 90s I'm thinking that yet? probably, yeah, the real boom in TVCs um, and commercials was really uh, probably 1984. I can remember using cut negative, which was really pretty clumsy. Um, you know, our clients would actually take the dailies, the original camera negative to a film editor, a negative cutter, and they would actually assemble the negative in some A or B roll fashion with counts, and you'd be able to find it that way. Of course, later on, we went to just, you know, putting up an entire daily roll and uh, going down and searching, you know, two minutes and 38 seconds to find the shot, which was really clumsy. Boy, I look back on that now. God, that was so lame. And of course, invariably, when you're doing a TVC or a commercial, you know, the first shot you want to, the, the client wants to look at is the first shot. And invariably, it's a close-up of an eyeball, right? <laughs> so maybe you do two or three shots, and then finally you get to look at the wide establishing shot, and you look at yourself and you go, 
God, that's all wrong now, isn't it? So, um, and having to thread up all those rolls of film, I mean, the last thing you'd want to do would be to go back and put up another roll of film again. Yeah, I've got, I've got two of those that have probably be knocking on my door in a minute. They, 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 they're just frightened they're missing out on something. <laughs> uh, I tell you, that's made the pandemic bearable. Yeah, yeah, we just, we just got a new puppy and wow, I forgot how hard it was. Go back to commercials, was, that was before Still Store, wasn't it? So your reference of matching was a lot more in your head back then, wasn't it? No, I do remember we had some pretty primitive things, but uh, God, once again, just like uh, some of the technology we used back then. I remember um, one of the first, uh, first still stores I used was an ADA, A-D-E-D-A. Yeah, I remember that. And God damn it. If that wasn't one of the first still stores where you could do a, you know, a five by five matrix of all your shots, yeah. you know, you could have 25 shots up at once. And it was like, yeah, I can barely do that today. Yeah, we had that Sintel matchbox thing that used to make a real clonky noise. It's got jump, yeah. jump, jump, loading stills. And before that, we actually used to record, it'd have the tape bot record on a one-inch tape and then jog it back, jog it back and put it for a mixer and split the reference that way through a little mixer on the desk because we didn't have a still store or couldn't afford one. God, we sound like a couple of old blokes. Well, we do, we do. But I just, I like to, I like to give a bit of this backstory to the, to the, the, the younger guys and girls are listening because everything was just so expensive. And if a boss said, well, you know, a still store was something like $50,000. Can you do without that for the next six months while we bill a bit more and carry on? Yeah, you did. And I think in terms of matching, and I think the other thing that helped me a lot is that we used to do a lot of what we call grading on the fly of like daily stuff where you put the reel up, and you get the tape recording and you had to grade that on the sticks and match exposure changes, color temperatures, stocks, filters in and out. And you did it, but you got really quick and you knew where you needed to move it before the slate left or before action, you'd have the shot in place. And that's something obviously people don't do anymore. So those older things, I think really, you leave you in good stead. And if I remember, um, Da Vinci used to have a great little hybrid system too. We could actually drop a couple of programmed corrections and then while you're laying it down, have an open board. And I thought that was really charming. Yeah. You know, being able to put that last kiss of whatever on each shot yeah. as it goes by, you can say up oh, that just slightly green. You can hit it as it goes down on the fly. Of course, that was a linear output to tape. So yes. Yeah. We don't do that anymore. No, no, no. So in terms of, uh, the peak of the business in commercials was that a riot in Santa Monica where you were working? Do you think, or was it prior to that? Yeah, I would think so. I would say the years between 2000 and 2006, seven, I mean, those were really golden times. I mean, uh, like I said, commercial colors at that point were rock stars. Uh, you know, you could command your rate. Um, there was, uh, once again, so much work. There was probably three full shifts of work in commercials, which was incredibly rare. And um, there was just so much work. There was just no reason you couldn't make a mint. And so a lot of that in terms of the money side, because you would get a cut of the room. Is that is that how it used to work then? If, if you remember back in the, um, uh, yeah, 2005, something like that, the industry had really changed at that point. And, you know, uh, 
big business was really, uh, you know, in our pockets. Uh, you had a real influx of MBAs, you know, number crunchers, accountants who were coming in and putting serious scrutiny on some of the bottom lines of these companies. And a part of that is where the incentive programs came in. And Bean Counters quickly realized that, hey, let's tie, uh, you know, Bob's salary to his billings. And, um, you know, it's a pretty simple formula, quite frankly. You get a percentage of, um, you know, the room. Maybe you didn't get your assistance overtime, but you got, uh, you know, the Simo decks, you've got film cleaning, you've got uh, overtime. You were going to get a percentage of all that stuff. So it was really golden. What they would do is match, I'm just going to use a figure, you know, 35% of the billings are now your salary. So if you're making a million dollars, you can do the X. If you're making yeah. 2 million, you can do the X. Yeah. And, uh, you know, at that point, 2 million a year was like child's play. It was just falling off the trees. Right. So. Oh, that's, that's good numbers. Yeah. Those were good numbers back at the time. And you got to remember this, of course, this, this is of course after the unions are long gone. Yeah. Um, unions just couldn't keep up with the pay rate. But, but you were working crazy hours as well. You got to put it into perspective, haven't you? And, you know, doing long sessions and, but I suppose it had its benefits. Yeah. But you know what? I remember taking more time off then than I do now. You know, I remember shutting down at five o'clock going sailing. You yeah. Know. I remember that. I remember that. Those days are uh, far and few between now. It's gotten much more serious and much more controlled. And, and, but did you find yourself saying to the client, oh, you know, really we should do another pass in this and, oh, we need to clean these reels or, oh, six frames a second, you know, because it's in your interest, wasn't it, I suppose, to keep them in there longer and offer them more things? Did, did that ever come into it or you just, let's get this job, let's get the best we can get for this job? Uh, you know, once again, I think the respect is really earned on repeat business. And, uh, you know, I, I really never worked at it that way. I always thought, gee, if we finish on time or even under budget, uh, that's going to go a lot longer to, you know, generating that repeat business and that repeat client. Yeah. I, so that was I, always my approach. Yeah, I think you know? I think you're right. I never I never worked in a situation where I had a cut of the room. But obviously, as we we know, you've got to satisfy your producer as much as you have as your director or your DP, probably even more now. So if you're pulling something in on time or under time and everyone's happy, then that's going to go a long way of getting you the repeat business as well. Yeah. If you remember the time was pretty golden too. And if, um, if we can get a little bit of uh, LA history here, you know, there were, there were bidding wars for legitimate colors. Um, all you had to do was drop a couple of uh, breadcrumbs or a couple of seeds in the grapevine that you were unhappy or that you wanted to leave. And um, not only would you have prospects for another job, but your existing employer would be uh, in your face too, you know, offering you uh, another zero on your paycheck. It was pretty crazy. Yeah. And just uh, as another little backstory, like you had to sign sort of contracts that not a lot of other colorists probably are aware of a lot of people probably on a month or a couple of month thing you probably had a was it a year deal you normally you'd sign now those were pretty locked in contracts they were usually two or three years okay right let me tell you a little story of we're talking about bidding wars i can tell you one example one of the companies i really admired was a company called 525 in hollywood they were uh, acquired by 
Ascent Media and dissolved, but a great, great company. And uh, I can remember walking in and meeting the two principals of the company, a guy named Steve Hendricks and Kelvin Duckett. Yeah, and, you know, I walk in with my cowboy boots. I had a pearl button shirt on and uh, I was wearing a New York Street, uh, New York City Street Rolex, you know, a fake Rolex. Yeah. And the first thing Steve does is he busts me on it. And he says, dude, you know, how can we uh, how can we trust you to work here when you're a fraud? <laughs> I was like, oh, man, that's crazy. So it turns out I never went to work there because I was under contract at another facility. And the side part of that story is Bill Frazee, uh, another great guy at Editel, uh, put up a great banner that said Festa stays at Editel when it was all said and done. But quite frankly, uh, since I never went to work at 525, Steve Hendricks, who busted me on the fake Rolex, he and I have become golden friends and probably one of the dearest relationships and friendships I've had because we never worked together. Yeah, I know I know the name because Clark, because Clark worked there for a while. So I've had stories sure. stories from him about working there. Yeah. And did did you know a lot of the other colorists around that time as well? Did you did you used to meet up at awards things? So everyone sort of knew each other, even though there was no internet or social media presence. How did, how did that work? You networked um, otherwise, I suppose you rang them up, you had gatherings and things. I think it was very much um, just inside your own building, really. I ended up going into business with my buddy Clark Muller only because we were, you know, we were Bay buddies. We were kind of right next to each other at Riot in particular. And, um, you know, those relationships are, are pretty golden. I won't say that misery loves company, but anytime you're together and you're in the trenches, you're in the foxhole with somebody, you learn a lot about them and, you know, uh, if you want to hang out with them or not. So well, I think that's really where the relationships are made. Yeah, let's let's talk about that, Bob. So things are going really well. You're right. You're pulling in big zeros and things are going well. And then around the 06 or 07, uh, you and yourself and Clark were going around NAB with a shopping list, buying up kit and spending lots of dollars. How, how did that come around? What? Uh, you're talking about a company that um, – Clark, myself, and Darby Walker were um, equity partners in. It was called New Hat. And Clark had a relationship with a um, Brazilian investor uh, who had studios in Brazil. Uh, his studios were called uh, Studios Mega, so Mega Studios. And uh, yeah, Clark um, was a smart cookie, put together a great package. And we opened up a great boutique in 2008 and it was a hell of a clubhouse, man. We ran that for five years and it was great stuff. However, since we did start it in 2008, we had a little thing called the recession. Mm -hmm. um, 2009, we also saw this thing called film die. And, you know, digital acquisition became very popular. So it's a very uncomfortable position that not only did we have to work in a linear fashion, like sync sound and put, you know, film up on a couple of spirit scanners, uh, which was hard enough on its own to start a company, but then we also had to do a, a data-centric workflow. So, um, boy, considering uh, we had all those strikes working against us uh, to run that company for five years and, you know, have fun and be profitable and all that, uh, you know, it was really golden. Uh, I remember going in there. It was, a, it was a really cool place, really designed well. I had a good vibe to it. So 
it was good. It really was. And the joy of it, I got to tell you, the joy of it was, is that it really was a, um, a clubhouse. I mean, the um, investor ended up buying a couple of triplexes behind the building, which we used for offices and uh, they primarily were empty uh, until the investor came up and, uh, and uh, you know, dropped in every couple times a year. But uh, as a matter of consequence, we had, you know, um, rooms that we could use as offices there. We had, um, you know, showers, you could take showers. I would ride my bike into work every day. So, you know, I'd uh, leave the bike in there and take a shower every day. But more than that, we had just a great group of people and uh, just a fantastic atmosphere. Darby Walker did a great job on the decor and, you know, keeping us together as a den mother, really. Yeah. Did a fantastic job as executive producer. And Clark and myself, you know, I'm not going to kid you. Did we battle about which software to use? Oh, absolutely. It was not pretty. But as I look back on it now, you know, it was really a great, great golden time. Yeah. And, um, you know, you learn a lot about, do you want to run a business? Do you want to be responsible for 25 people's, you know, paychecks? Do you want to worry about that? Or do you just want to work alone? Um, like I am now working yeah. for the largest company, of, you know, just being an artist. Yeah. It's funny you say that because I don't recall many people in the States like leaving the company, the umbrella of a company, and going set up their own shop. It seems to have happened more maybe in Oz or London or Europe than it has maybe in the States. Maybe I'm, do you think that as well? Well, certainly in Hollywood. I mean, Hollywood, yeah. You know, these large post companies make it very attractive for you to stay. Yeah. So, um, I think that has a lot to do with it. I think it does. And like you say, there's, there's, you've got to put a lot on the line there. When, as soon as you got staff and you throw in kit, and the kit then was a lot of dollars to put the rooms together, then you throw in something like the GFC, it just puts the frighteners on people, I think. But the other thing I think, we may be seeing a bit more of that now as people maybe have been working at home, the company sent them a bit of kit at home, and they're thinking, well, maybe I could do this on a smaller scale, not set up a post house, but maybe have a smaller boutique place in with someone else. So we could see a little bit of shift once the dust settles out of this COVID thing. Yeah, I really think that's what I call the, uh, you know, the COVID collaboration. It's really put, um, it's really put the crunches on, um, on new relationships, on working with uh, new people, because uh, you know, almost all the work we're doing now is virtual. So these are people that we know, these are people we trust, and they trust us. And that's really what makes the, uh, makes the relationship work. And of course, having your reel on a, um, a website like a Technicolor or Company 3, I mean, that really generates um, a great deal of trust. And I think really, that's all we have right now is relationships and trust. Uh yeah, let's let's talk about Company Three because you said you've been there maybe three times, off and on at different times. It's had different names, it's changed. So, what's it? What's it really like? Is it a good good fun vibe in there? There's some long term colorists in there, isn't there as well? Some stayers. Well, let's see. Let's look at the Company Three masthead right now. I count about fifty five colorists on the masthead. I mean, that's. Uh... It's a big group of very talented people, you know. I'm not going to kid you. Uh, this is this is the big leagues. Company three is the big pool. You know, you're in the deep end. You've got to know how to swim. Yeah. 
there's a lot of very impressive peers on staff and, uh, you know, they, they don't suffer fools gladly. Let me tell you a, a quick little anecdote I, um, I picked up off of Reddit. Uh, you know, we, uh, we do a lot of Netflix shows and one of them is a, a show called Ozark. And I happen to know the colorist very well. I won't tell you who it is, but, uh, you know, I look, I look out for people who I respect. And um, one of the Reddit uh, posters was very critical of the look of Ozark. I don't know if you've seen it, but it's a very yeah. blue wash. Yeah, no, I like this dramatic. show. Yeah, I've watched all of them. Yeah, you know, it's a very distinctive look and a very distinctive show. And uh, I kind of went to bat uh, for them, but somebody else did a fantastic job. And I wanted just to share it with you. And um, just to give you a little background, he was basically saying, you know what? Uh, this may not be your cup of tea, but, you know, there's DPs, there's creatives, there's executives. There's a lot of people upstream and maybe it's not all the colorist and maybe it is. But either way, uh, this original poster on Reddit went on to say, you know, Resolve, it might be very accessible to you. But uh, I would wager that most of the user base couldn't grade a studio feature in 40 hours with executives and creatives in the room, providing them an entertaining experience while conceptualizing the grade seamlessly on the fly. You cannot get through a thousand cut scripted TV show in two eight hour shifts uh, with the show close enough to lock the grade in a four hour review. These, these are the prerequisites to be a colorist in the caliber of Hollywood facilities. So, you know, you can't bash, no. you can't bash a show unless you can do that, you know, while juggling plates. No, they are. That's great. That's great words there. That's very, very true. I always think that uh, I probably shared this with other people in the past too, but you know, um, I obviously I stay motivated and uh, uh, what really draws me to the chair is a, uh, you know, it's a, it's a improvisation every day. When I go in, you have no idea what you're going to do. You have no idea what you're going to work on. You have no idea who you're going to work with. You know, to me, it's like uh, musical improvisation. It's like great jazz. And I think, um, talking about jazz, when I think about it, I, I always think about a Charlie Parker anecdote. He basically said, you know, learn the changes and then forget them. So what he's basically saying is you and I have learned everything we know about color grading. We've seen front light. We've seen backlight. Smoke, no smoke. You know what? We've learned how to handle all that stuff. And now forget it because the magic moment when you drop into that colorist chair and you collaborate with other people on footage you've just seen for the first time, it's like jazz improvisation. You have no idea what's going to happen. The only thing left you know, for me is the client collaboration. It's fun in the hot seat. It's that spark of creativity that happens when creative minds line up. You're juggling, uh, you know, what are you doing? You're juggling looks. You're communicating with clients. You've got tech problems. The room is on fire. Yeah. You know, all the while you're dynamically creating images on the fly. Yeah. And I really think that's the life of a pro colorist. Now, some people can't do that. You know, they can be the best technical people and they can make beautiful pictures, but they just can't they either communicate or they don't want to be in a room with other people and they just can't do it. But that's the same. We are all different, aren't we? We're all wired slightly different. 
But you've got to have all those attributes if you want to be working, certainly at the top line TV or commercials, any part of grading, I'd say. Well, I mean, you've trained plenty of people. And I look at what everybody takes from the, uh, from the circus, you know. Somebody's going to take your gift of gab. Somebody's going to take your, you know, your technological background. Uh, and it's, it's a real, it's, it's the really successful ones that know how to blend those and, you know, walk and chew gum at the same time. Yeah, I remember walking around Company 3 and there's yourself in one room, like a bit of a little side story. Most of the graders there have your own bays, don't you? Is that still the case there? You got your own room or do you, you move around a bit more than a few years back? I got to tell you, with um, the new advent of, uh, I'm not sure how much of this I can tell you. Um, you know, Company 3 is a forward-facing company. And a lot of the times, um, the, the client studio is um, just what you think it is, just what you think. It's a very um, client forward facing room, but the only thing in the room is really a display and a work service. Yeah. The um, Resolve workstation might be in another zip code. The media might be in India. And uh, yeah, it's become very different. So we don't really have dedicated rooms per se anymore because honestly, you're just plugging in resources. And I don't want to make a color seem like a resource because we're more than that. But quite frankly, the studios of today are the creative collaborators who can put together bandwidth, clients, colorists, and technology and coordinate all that on the fly. Yeah, yeah. I'm going back. It was probably probably about eight years ago, and this was like this is Dave Huss's room, this is Stefan's room, uh, Bob's rooms here, and they're all, Ziggy first. All, he had a room, and they're all set up slightly different because you obviously had more kit. You could customize panels, rooms. Still had uh, you know different ways and monitors, and so everything was a lot more customizable back then, I suppose. So it made sense that you had your own base and you knew where everything was, and you had your own little music and. The, some of them were decorated certain ways, but I can understand how that's changing and easy to change now. Makes sense. And I think that's really what they're trying to do is make it so that anybody can walk into any studio and, and work because it's all very, very consistent. So let's talk about you, you. In a way, you said we started talking about drama and TV and mastering. Then you went through commercials at a high level. And now you're back doing drama again. Is that an easy transition or is it just really color correcting, just like in a different form, really? What's my friend Clark Muller say? You know, it's really just three trackballs and a play button. I mean, uh, you know, any technology will work at any time. But uh, we all know it's all about your eyes and your hands. Uh, I look on the transition of the color business, though, in particular. Um, you know, you may not recognize it right now, but there's transitions happening. Um, as I look back on my career, you know, there's a lot of path, um, a lot of paths that we all took. A lot of us did uh, network shows, uh, teasers. We did film trailers. We did music videos. You know, we did commercials. And as I look back on all those business lines now, I mean, they're all virtually dead. So um, my particular background was probably um, five, seven years ago when I started to see commercials getting soft. 
And to me, that was a kind of a natural point to transition to episodic TV. And personally, Company 3, eight to 10 years ago, you know, we did episodic TV. We fully admitted it was a hobby. You know, we were doing episodic TV for J.J. Abrams and Michael Bay because they were crossing over. I mean, you know, they did music videos and commercials, and now they're doing TV shows. So uh, luckily for me to be able to be involved in a Michael Bay TV show eight years ago and, uh, and hone my skills, not only still doing commercials, but also doing long form episodic. I mean, that was really kind of a golden parachute. That was, that was really wonderful. I really, I didn't really have training wheels, but uh, you know, I was on the fast track to episodic TV and uh, I'm very, very grateful to that. And of course I was also lucky enough to move to a sister company called Encore. So um I did move to Encore and I started working on shows. And of course, naturally, all the DPs on those shows I had worked with when I was doing uh, commercials. I mean, these guys are crossing over also. So they recognized the transition. And it was also very important that, you know, I knew all the staff at Encore because I'd worked there a couple of times too. (laughs) So it all kind of worked together. Well, these Uh, shows, though, I mean, they've got huge production value to them, haven't they? I mean, I'm talking about the bigger ones. I mean, they are 10-part movies, really, aren't they? When you, when you look at them. I mean, they're, they're, they're huge shows. Yeah, quite frankly, in the, the amount of time and resources that we can allocate to this, there's nothing that a feature DI has on any episodic TV show. Nothing. Uh, let's see, right now, my current active show is a uh, show called Yellowstone with Kevin Costner. I'm right in the thick of season four right now. And this show, um, the look of the show is really right in my wheelhouse. Uh, we're using a custom LUT that we've developed over five different iterations. And, you know, it's a contemporary Western, so it's got to have a little bit of that Western-ness without being, you know, sepia yes. or uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly. You know, we try to stay away from that. But it's a beautiful contemporary look, uh, look with a nice rosy toe turquoise skies, bulletproof blacks, seared whites, curves that never cross. I mean, it's just right in my sweet zone. I like that show. Yeah, but it's right. allowed me to cross over from uh, commercials into uh, episodic TV by, you know, using, you know, an offset log workflow, live grain, you know, exteriors with great DPs, yeah. you know. And in the end, as great a job as I do, you know, you've got Kevin Costner on a horse in Montana. It's pretty, it's pretty great. You can't really mess that up. How, how many days do you get per episode? Is it's like a 50, are they 60 minutes or 50 minute episodes to color? Oh, you know, the streamers can be anything. Um, In Yellowstone in particular, it can be 44, it can be 64. Everyone can be different. And do you get the same Um, amount of days or is it a little bit flexible depending? No, no, you got to make the square peg fit the round hole. Right. I think the budget for Yellowstone is 18 hours of, of color time for myself. That does not include, you know, executive DP reviews or VFX drop-ins or uh, DP notes. But as far as just building the show, yeah, yeah, basically get a little more than two full days. Okay. Oh, that's good. And then obviously that's all remote at the moment before covid though would they come in just to do the review and you'd pretty much fly solo for the two days uh you know most of the shows are that are weekly you would see people on a weekly basis yeah 
Uh, Yellowstone in particular is a show where we deliver all at once. We deliver all 10 episodes on a single day. So quite frankly, um, I generally do a review. You're not going to believe this. I review all 10 episodes over the period of five days with the DP. Really? Yeah. yeah. So it's a monumental, heavy lifting, you know, every day is a, a migraine at the end of the day because you're just here. You know, you're doing an awful lot of work over a short period of time. So, uh, and we will be doing that at the end of this month. I'll be doing 10 episode review uh, over the period of five days. So it's, it's, they want to, it's like a DP says, we'll take a look at something. You will go in there, tweak it, maybe make some notes, fix up later. Is that was all you fixing it there and then while you're in that show? I, you know, I've done a little bit of virtual stuff with uh, DP, but uh, with Yellowstone and DPs. But primarily, we'll send them the show in an encrypted drive. They'll make uh, printed notes, yeah. get me those printed notes, and then we will have an in-person review. Yeah. So by the time I've got a DP sitting on my lap, um, you know, things are pretty damn buttoned up at that point. Yeah. And most of the notes I'll be getting during the review period will just be story-based, you know, brighten up the gun in the corner, you know, yeah. let's, let's see a little more dialogue from this guy's face, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh what are your thoughts, Bob, about adding grain into TV shows? Well, obviously, everything's mainly shot on digital now, but so digital acquisition, adding grain, are you a fan of that or does it totally depend on the genre and the look that you're trying to achieve? You know, I think it depends on the grain package, honestly. Um, I'm a big fan of live grain, which is not cheap. I believe it's about 5,000 bucks per episode but it's really a fantastic three-dimensional style grain that's kind of exposure-based. And quite frankly, the, um, the depths and the sophistication of the setup is really great. In Yellowstone in particular, we've got separate grain structures for um, daylight, uh, interior and exteriors, and evening interior and exteriors. So four different grain setups. And of course, we may change the amplitude of those but um, it's a very sophisticated grain setup that we use on the post-clip timeline. And um, I'm actually a big fan because when I see stuff on a larger playback display, I mean, I actually want to see a little bit of that um, texture without taking me out of the story. Sometimes it's too clean. Yeah. Yeah. That's the other, that's the other thing I was going to say, like it can, it can great in our bays on the 30,000 monitors, but the time it gets to air or, gets to an iPad or a phone, are we still getting the same feeling or is it just getting mushed up and in compression somewhere? And I think the compression's also, and the noise reduction compression downstream, you know, yeah. quite frankly, it's, it's taking out some of the grain anyway. So um, it's quantizing the grain somewhat. So yeah, I'm a big fan, live grain. Yeah, Check no, I, I've, I've, I've heard of it, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. it's good stuff. There's lots of different ways again, isn't there, of how you do it. All I would say to people is just, just test it. You got to test it. You got to render it. You got to bring it back. Look at different levels and different devices. Get the confidence to use it. So when the producer says to you, "Oh, or could or director says, oh, let's try a bit of grain," you've got a fair idea of levels, and you can have confidence to be able to put it in there. And remember, some of these things will take a while to render. Yeah, additional time to do it. Yeah, now, and it's you know it's it's even more sophisticated. You want on the blacks, you want on the whites, 
um, you know, you can spend a lot of time setting the grain. Yeah, what about the software? Now, you were on, you've been on most color correctors, I would think. I think you had Pandora's at New Hat, and then maybe you had a base light there as well. Um, you've obviously been on Resolve. You've been on the older DaVinci's. <laughs> is it is it a big a big deal or is it mainly down to the to the guy or girl pushing the buttons? You know, I think you can break it down and look at what type of business you're in. You know, for episodic TV, which system works better for you, which is faster for you. You know, um, I'm really keen on you know grading a show and then coming in and making changes with the DP or the director. And, you know, rippling entire uh, sequences. And um, I think different boxes do that at different levels. And, you know, I'm kind of uh, I'm a big fan of resolve in that respect, being able to select an entire uh, scene or an entire group of shots and just adding one note or rippling is just uh, it's really monumental and instrumental or adding things to a group. Things like that are just so quick and so easy. So, you know, use the right tool for the right job. But um, you know, in the end, it's three trackballs and a play button. You know, it's what you do with it. Yeah, uh, it's your hands and your eyes, and that's what people are going to be judging it by. Yeah, no, no, it's true. There, at the end of the day, you, you use the tool that can get the job done. The client walks out happy. Uh, let's let's do the next one. Uh, is and, the way I've sort of looked at it. And what I've noticed, especially working in a place like Company Three with fifty-five colors is that no two colorists use any box the same way. I mean, you can look at the resolve and God, there's no, you know, some people use a log offset workflow. Some people use curves. Some people use lift gain and gamma. You know, that's just the elementary introductory stuff. I always think of colorists are like, um, are like blind artists, you know, and they're walking around an elephant trying to describe an elephant by what they touch and what they feel. No two colorists can describe an elephant the same way. No two colorists grade a show the same way. I guarantee you, you do not work the same way I do. No, no, it's, and it's, it's interesting when you have to pick up on a project or you have to collaborate and you get a project from someone else or they can't do the last show or something and you get their project and you're looking into it going, well, why did you do it like that? And you're looking at it, you think, well, the picture looks all right, looks good, but I wouldn't probably wouldn't do it like that. And why is that there? And but it all works. Yeah, I've done that a few times. It's hard. I mean, I've seen, you know, I've seen timelines with you know 20, 30 nodes on them. And I'm like, really? I mean, I've taken over your project. I can duplicate this in three nodes, bro. <laughs> Bob, there's a lot you can buy for that. You know that, don't you? Just go and buy a lot. You, you go on Google. Type in blockbuster look. There's probably, you know, there's that's, probably uh, your Yellowstone, I, Bob's Yellowstone Lux. That's available. Yellowstone number five. That's what you want. <laughs> that, actually, that's really one of my pet peeves. And, um, you know, I'm on social media a lot. I'm a consumer of social media. I'm not an over poster. And I see so much disinformation on social media. You know, people posting things and saying, you know, this is the way to build a bleach bypass looker this is the way to do a cross-process look. And I look at how complicated and how stupid it is. You know, you don't need 30 nodes to build something. If you know something about, you know, laboratory procedures and practices and how things were done in the film world, and you understand those things, you should be able to build them from scratch, you know? And I think LUTs should be treated as, 
you know, not stackable looks that you can whiz the client with, but I think they should be used as utilities. You know, you should be able to put your color space and your color science where you want it and maybe put a spin on the curve. But quite frankly, you should be able to know how to build it yeah. uh, from the ground up. Yeah. If, if not, you're going to get in trouble at some stage. Yeah. It's going to. And, you know, uh, you. my other pet peeve is, you know, anybody can put a stack of LUTs on something. But God damn it, try to match those 1,000 shots now. And that's really where you, you know, you cut the wheat from the chaff. Yeah, I think so. And I think the difference is now so much stuff is being color graded. So when, you know, we were doing things back in the day, so much stuff. And some people just have to work so quickly. There's a lot of editors coloring stuff. There'll never be a budget to get it out of that bay to a colorist. And they want just to do it the quickest way. And if they throw a, a LUT package or something at it and it works, then so be it. And that, there's a place for that. Okay, somebody probably made those LUTs and they made some money there. But as soon as we start getting to the sort of levels we're talking about, what you were talking about earlier, of being able to match those shots with those clients on deadlines, that's when no way like any of those packages are really going to help you if you desire to be at that level. There's a difference. Uh, I guarantee you at the upper echelon, in the trenches of... Uh... Of the pros, I think you'll find that almost everybody uses, I'm going to go on a limb here and say there are no more than five to eight LUTs. And primarily, most of those are really to set yourself up in a great place using the right camera, the right LUT, and the right color space, and then the, let you do the magic on top of that. Yeah. You know, you really just want to give yourself a great safety net. Yeah. So the, the, uh, the topic on everyone's lips, HDR. What what are your thoughts on HDR, the, the move to it? What are, you, are your shows HDR? You're seeing most of them all now. I know Netflix are liking everything to be HDR, I think. Yeah, I just finished a Marvel show that uh, is done, and uh, that was all HDR. And that was an HDR grade in both 1,000 nits and 4,000 nit Dolby Vision, as well as SDR. Yeah. And uh, we had a great way of... Uh, having all three monitors in the bay at once and grading once to fit all three output mediums. And I got to tell you, that was just crazy. Clients would come in and say, which monitor should I be looking at? And I'd be saying, well, yeah. you know, which distribution do you want? Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. It was really crazy. I'm a big fan of HDR. I love a thousand nits. To me, it's uh, once you start playing in it and you get used to it, I mean, it's awfully hard to go back, honestly. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've got no problems on an X300 at 1,000 nets. I think that's great stuff. Is that what you have across company three, most of the bays, the X300s? Exclusively. And then we have uh, a Panasonic set up for clients. Um, the Easy 1000, or I think it's called the GZ 12000 now. Um, you know, 60, 65-inch displays for clients to look at. And so you said you're grading sort of three at the same time. Are you a fan of the Dolby Vision way where you grade the HDR first and everything's a derivative metadata coming out and that's automatically your 100-nit version or your 500-nit version if you've got a big screen telly at home? Do you do that HDR no. one first? Yeah, I would do HDR first. But, you know, I'm not a big fan of doing, you know, SDR simultaneously. I really think it takes a little more finesse to yeah. really get a great SDR. 
Um, I can't tell you how many times I've used the metadata and uh, try to make it all work. And you can make it work. And I have delivered it successfully hundreds of times. But, you know, if you really want a great 709 version, God damn it, you know, spend a couple hours and do a legitimate trim pass on your 709 version. Don't try to force feed the metadata on top. Yeah, of it. yeah, yeah, I think so. And in a number of years, I suppose the SDR version will not be the primarily the prime, you know, the, the money earner, if you like. You know, we, we know it's driven by phones and high init displays, and that's where it is that's driving this. So we'd just be able to concentrate and probably just make your one master and not be so concerned about how the SDR derivative what will look. So I think that's going to be better going forward. It's only going to get easier. What about the uh, CSI, the Colorist Society? Uh, have you heard of them? Are you a member? I believe I am still currently a member. That's good. That's good. I believe March is my uh, renewal period, though, so good. I could be on the cusp right now. <laughs> I will tell you that, you know, um, you know, high visibility and validation of your peers is what clients respond to. And I think CSI is important to building your business or your career as you're on the rise. You know, there's, there's nothing better than having a couple of tattoos on your arm that really designates you as a legitimate, bona fide colorist. I do appreciate what they're trying to do with the Academy as far as getting recognition for colorists. And, um, you know, I'd be behind uh, some type of awards, you know, informal award show that might be presented through the CSI, whether it be crowdsourced or virtual or, or whatever, you know, I'm behind that a thousand percent. But I got to tell you, as a guy who's in the, uh, you know, the apex, the senior years of his career, uh, do I need those type of existing uh, validations? Probably not. You know, most of my business is really based on repeat business. I won't say I've met everybody in this business because every day I still make new relationships. But um, I think the CSI, social media in particular, those are great for men and women who are on the rise, on the go, who need the validation of being a bona fide colorist. And I think the CSI really does give you a bona fide, you know, attaboy that you are indeed qualified and you're a colorist. Yeah, and that's, you know, we're, we're constantly trying to sort of fend off the IMAC warriors, I suppose, in a way. And there are certain requirements to be in there. So I think that's doing a good job. And I think it's good that, you know, you are behind it because people see that someone like yourself, colorist at a certain level, is, is joined and sees value in the society because they will only go places if people get behind it and go yeah we can do this and maybe when we can have meetings again you can get together and you know i think it's it's good it's it's going in the right direction so fair play yeah, i've done a couple of uh, a couple of tv shows i did i used the csi credit at the end and uh you know it's not easy to get the um, executives to uh use that designation and get it on there but uh you know once it's on there I, it was very rewarding for me personally to see it on there so yeah. More power to us. No, no, I think we, we do have to remind ourselves of that. You know, let's let's get that credit in early as we want to be credited, because I know you know we normally get asked, what do you want to get credited at? Add that CSI to the end of it. And then that'll all help with the IMBD uh, recognition as well. So we can get more recognition easily that way. 
And we've got a chapter down here in Australia and New Zealand now, which just helps if shows are coming to be shot in Australia and they may need to be posted because some are, we've got an instant sort of database of CSI people who have a show reel there with runs on the ball that they've done. So it's an easy way of execs going, oh, okay, yeah, so-and-so, they're working. Oh, yeah, it's good. You mentioned the Fester tree to me earlier. Is, uh, is that something to do with maybe guys or girls that you've taught or been your assists? Is that what that is, or is it something else? Um, well, as long as we're on the topic of social media, you got to remember the, um, the initial foundationing use group that we all participated in in the color world was called the Telecine Internet Group. Yeah. And this was sponsored by a moderator who was actually my assistant at one time, Rob Lengelbach. And, you know, I think Rob did a great job. He had a thousand color professionals, you know, working um, side by side on the interwebs back then as a email, you know, internet newsletter. And I got to admit, I mean, it was very influential at the time. And there was a lot of stuff I learned. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of very topical things that happened on that. So the, the Telecine Internet Group uh, was, was pretty informal in that it wasn't really sponsored by a uh, uh, manufacturer or by a group of post facilities. It was really us men and women in the trenches, you know, interacting together. And that was really the great part of it. And at the time, uh, the Festa Tree was... Uh, something that grew out of all the assistants that I'd worked with, all the people that had sat side by side with me in the trenches who uh, worked with me slinging film or rolling tape or, uh, you know, I think there were at one point uh, 20 people in the tree and they all sprung from my route. So I've got a, a, you know, honestly, I've got a great history of uh, mentoring people and I'd like to thank the people in the tree I would like to think, you know, all 20 of them are out there making six figures now as colorists. Excellent. If I've liquidated the gene pool, I'm sorry. I apologize. But, um, <laughs> you know, I, uh, I really felt like I, I needed to give because, I mean, let's face it. Um, if you look at coloring in general, it's a pretty selfish group of people. You're really, you know, it's all about your ego and your accolades. And what, what have you done lately that's, you know, people want to see. And quite frankly, there was nothing happening in a mentorship style on any scale in these post facilities. So, you know, my, my deal was to really help people out. Cut to today, uh, you know, today a company like Company 3 has a uh, internal mentorship program. And, you know, the message to the mentees is, you know, to be professional, be yourself, and, you know, your personality is your calling card. This is what you're selling to other people in the foxhole. You know, don't, my message to mentees is don't try to be the colorist of the day. You know, don't try to be Stefan. Serve the project. Use your strengths. You know, don't take a flyer on a job and make everything green. <laughs> you know, uh, contribute to the project. Be a great bass player for the project, you know. Contrib contribute to the song. You know, support the song. Do great things. You know, um, Incompetent colorists are a dime a dozen. Um, but the Company 3 mem uh, Mentorship Program is a 15-week uh, cycle that we've just begun. It's an internal program at Company 3 where um, I think there's 30 mentees now. And we're going to take these mentees through a 15-week virtual program, spend an hour per week with each of them, 
and you know, try to give them the access, the awareness, and the advocacy that they would want by you know listening, finding out what they really want to do with their careers, where they want to go, how we can help link them up, how we can help them build a real, how we can help them get the education they want, you know, technologically, and uh, really be in their corners. And I, I think if you look back on the kind of the missing elements of post-production, I mean, it, there's never been a human element to post-production, you know, it's always been just a cutthroat business, you know, you're in shark infested waters with other colorists, you know, shooting your kneecaps off to get the next job. And I think this is a, it's a real welcome change. And how do people apply for this uh, mentorship? This uh, I'm sorry, this is strictly internal at Company 3 right now. Oh, okay. So um, it's people that are already working in the company, uh, lower level? Yeah, or? for instance, uh, my mentee is, is not really working in the color part of our business. Um, but um, my mentee is a he, and he's working uh, in Burbank at a sister company. And... Um, you know, I'm going to help and make sure that uh, his vision is realized, you know, whatever I can do. Not only what I can teach him as far as, you know, um, uh, active listening and goal setting, but, you know, how can I be inclusive and, you know, kind of uh, point people in the right direction so that they actually, you know, become self-actualized and, and really develop in what they want to do. Now, that's cool. I mean, I've obviously been involved with iColorist and, teaching people as well. And I enjoy doing that. And I think you've got to enjoy doing it, otherwise you can't do it. So uh, I think it's uh, it's good fun doing that. Well, I'm still enjoying it. You know, I still enjoy coloring. So. It's the mark of maturity, you know, when you're out to help other people and you give, you know, you're not worried about somebody picking at your, your jobs or stealing your jobs or, you know, your assistant picking up, you know, a, a, a show that you were doing. You know, it's not about that. Hopefully you're mature. Uh, you've been in business plenty. You understand. You're not worried about your own ass. And uh, you just want to give back and help. Nothing wrong with that. No, no, that's great. No, I'd be interested in hearing more about that. That's cool. Now, there's one thing I always talk about and I ask my guests who come on the Color Tour is about your, your best session. Now, that doesn't have to be the best, most profitable movie or the most highest could be just something you really liked or you just loved it for the look of it and did you have like a nightmare session did you have like a tarantino slam the door and walk out bob have you had only any one? of those i can only boil it down to one well yeah <laughs> well maybe two we've got time <clears throat> you know warren invariably after uh you know doing over twenty thousand commercial sessions some of the memories get a little hazy and, you know, some are best forgotten and, you know, some should be left from my memoirs, I guess. But, you know, you've done this job enough to know that um, doing this is like driving a cab or like being a shrink. You know, all the stuff that happens behind you. Oh, my God. You know, haven't you seen it all? I mean, I've seen everything short of fornication. The drug use was, you know, incredible back in the day behind me. I mean, that stuff was incredible. But in the end, you know, this job is all about interpersonal relationships and the good personalities you'll never forget. And the incendiary personalities, they always leave a scar on you. <laughs> so if I had to answer, I, I think the best and worst scenario in my case actually came from the same explosive personality. Um, 
the best session from a calorie's perspective, God, I'm just going to remember um, just working on uh, a given project that was shot in Europe, 35 millimeter, Aeroflex, south of France. The light was perfect. The foliage was unbelievable. Ducks crossing a country road with ducklings behind it. I mean, the image that I saw was just unbelievable. And it was so easy to work with and just dropped in my lap. And to this day, we still talk about what was it? Was it the, uh, the water at Technicolor Rome? Yeah, everybody says it was the water. That's what made that film so special. But you know what it wasn't? It was the director, it was the light, it was a session, you know, it was just fantastic. Um, the worst, ironically enough, involved the same director, verbal abuse, tears in the beginning, and it ended with outright nudity. And, uh, you know, I'm just going to leave it right there. And if uh, we want to take it more, uh, I'll have to read my book. <laughs> oh, man, it's funny. There are some, there are some highs and lows I mean, like that. Isn't it true, though? I mean, God, we've seen so much stuff happen behind us. It's unbelievable. Yeah. And just the, uh, the interpersonal relationships between people as they, uh, as they talk with their superiors or their subordinates. God, you just learn so much about people. I mean, especially now in these times when there's no one sitting behind us, we're there on our own. Yeah. We're not getting any of that behind us action, are we? Nothing's going on. So it's really hard again for these people who are trying to break in. That's so much part of the job as well, isn't it? Is all of that what you're listening, what you're hearing, the the bits you need to take from a client and the bits you don't. You just that's just experience. Hard to get that when you, you know, you sending pictures over the internet. And quite frankly, the communication now is just so important. You know, you don't realize how when you're working with people, you know, there's so much nonverbal cues, whether it's the music you're listening to during the session or, you know, lunch or whatever, you're sharing so much and so much is nonverbal and you're just rubbing elbows with everybody and, you know, you're, you're into it. But when you're, you know, working virtually, You've got to be super, super clear in your communication. And quite frankly, what I found is the resolve is really great with um, split screening, being able to show multiple looks at the same time on the screen. You know, a lot of times when you're working virtually, the client can be four seconds behind you just due to propagation delay. And you can't say, do you like this one or do you like this one? Because when you're cutting back and forth, they don't know which one you're on, (laughs) you know? And even if you're monitoring the feed, you really can't time it correctly. So um, I find the split screen thing, being able to show, you know, uh, multiple shots before, multiple shots after, and being able to create some type of grade display where I can show all my stills or all my still grades on a single shot and being able to see nine looks at once. Yes. And so here you go. I just put nine little bleach bypasses together. Just did this the other day. And I just hit loop. And I let the executives look at it. They talk about what they like about number one or number six or it's really become a, a little piece of business, a little dance you've got to do because people aren't in the bay with you to you know, shoot the shit anymore. You've got to be very, very clear. And um, it's really changed the way I work to be much more didactic and very clear and you know, showing multiple squares with multiple looks and there's no confusion. Yeah, it's funny, I'm, I'm working now with a production company at Newport Beach, not far from where you are. And we're using Frame.io and we're doing a bit of uh, 
backwards and forwards, it's working quite well, you know. You can, well, that's the plus side of this now. There is more of this remote you know, collaboration from anywhere in the world. Well, Bob, I'm going to wrap this up, man. It's been uh, fantastic both going down memory lane, talking about current workflows and what you're doing. Where can people find you? You said you're on social media. Do you have a website? No, I didn't say I was on social media. Oh, I said I consume you, social media. You look at but social quite media. Frankly, yeah, but quite frankly, I've been, uh, I can't explain it, but uh, I've been much, much happier since I've uh, pulled out of, you know, the, uh, the vitriol on social media. So, um, yeah, find me on the Company 3 website. I think that's the best place to exhibit your work in front of your peers. And um, that's usually what I do. Keep it simple. I work for Company 3. I'm a colorist. Excellent, Bob. It's been great. And you, you stay safe. And uh, I'll catch you when I'm in LA, whenever that is, buddy. Great. You know, I, I initially envisioned that maybe you and I would have a beer, maybe from the top of the H and the Hollywood sign. <laughs> you know, that would have been a great, uh, I know you used to do locations. That would have been a great location. But We, we still can. We still can. We can do part two, I'm sure. Yeah. Excellent. Right. Cool, man. All right, Warren. Great stuff, man. Thank you so much for uh, talking with me. Yeah. What fantastic insights from Bob there. That was great going down memory lane, talking about all those places he's worked at, things he's done. He really has been uh, at the top of the tree for a long time. Not easy to do that. Uh, things he referenced, the CSI Colorist Society International. Go to their website for more details about joining them. Uh, iColorist for any training needs. I'm running Resolve 17 classes with my friends Abel Cine in the US time zone. And I'm also running some coming up in May in the UK time zone. So there's something somewhere for you. And finally, the Colorist Mixer here, I'm wearing the branding, will be this year around NFA time, April the 17th. It's on a Saturday. You can join from 12 noon LA time. It's going to run for around six hours. Don't worry, it's not 24 hours or anything crazy like last time. And we got different speakers and keynotes, and we're going to be giving away some stuff and generally getting you guys together, and uh, we're going to have a great time. So that's Colorist Mixer tickets on sale now. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you on the next Color Tour. Stay safe, folks. <laughs>